0: hello everybody before we get into this week's episode of the official cello toys podcast firstly i want to drop some news on you the giant haystacks wembley variant in this brown gear the classic match against big daddy that everyone remembers will be released on the 10th of october so please visit cellotoys.net to find all that information Chella Toys have teamed up with Wrestling Trader to bring you the exclusive Al Snow action figure which we talk about throughout the interview with the man himself. WrestlingTrader.co.uk is the home for all of the information that you need with regards to pre-ordering the figure. They are one of the UK's biggest online retailers of all things wrestling and have an incredible range definitely worth checking them out and you can also check them out on instagram but firstly i want to introduce you to our new co-host i I can't do it in howard finkel new co-host um it's world renowned wrestling expert journalist and author it's brian solomon hello how are you doing
1: i'm doing great even though that was probably the worst howard finkel impression i ever heard
0: I could do better, but I don't want to ruin the microphone. Um, I don't have the pop shield here for it at the moment, but uh, I can do slightly better than that. But uh, yeah, see, I call you legendary during the interview. Now I've called you world renowned. You can tell that I'm just, you know, sucking up. So
1: clearly, because I, I don't, I really doubt if either of those monikers are accurate. But but I thank you anyway.
0: Oh, you're too, you're too modest. It's like Al Snow; he's too modest about Leaf Cassidy. I love. I, I, don't get me wrong. We almost exclusively ask him Leaf Cassidy questions throughout this interview, so he may never want to come back on the podcast.
1: I, I don't know if that was really what he was expecting, <laughs> but to, to just—I—I I, I was thinking he probably expected, you know, ECW and Head and Job Squad and all that. But um, yeah, we went with Leaf Cassidy, you know, and that's a choice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: certainly a choice um <laughs> uh, so yeah the uh the al snow figure and uh, the the artwork you'll see it on the the thumbnail for the show visit uh the turn podcast on instagram and uh, you have
1: a lot of really cool stuff coming up as well don't you i do i i'm super excited now because my my chic biography blood and fire is available for pre-sale i just got the green light from ECW Press to be able to really talk about that. If you go to Amazon and type, and look for it, Blood and Fire, The Unbelievable Real Life Story of Wrestling's Original Chic, you will find it and you can pre-order it, even though the book is not out. It, it's not out until April, but you can put the orders in now. And I actually wanna say really quick that I was blown away because I, I just saw the other day, somebody brought it to my attention, just based on the pre-orders alone, that it was the number one wrestling book on Amazon. Yeah, for like a few days. It was nice. That's excellent. And, and
0: the thing is as well, I believe it's not just – it's obviously about the Sheik, but if you want to learn about the Sheik's territory as well, it's it's a great book for that.
1: Yeah, and, and I want to be clear too because I know a, a lot of people that listen here – are probably, you know, old school WWF fans. So I want to make it clear, this isn't the Iron Sheik. I know that's a common misconception. This is the original Sheik, Ed Farhat, who uh, was the also the promoter in the Detroit territory. So like you said, I, I tried to make it a whole history of not only his territory in Detroit, wrestling in Ontario and Michigan and Ohio, but also everything he touched in the wrestling business, which... You know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even after, it was a lot because he was the top drawing and probably most feared, legitimately feared heel in the entire industry in those years. And so, you know, he had his fingers in a lot of wrestling history and it's all in the book. It's not just his life story. It's all that other tangential stuff. So I'm pretty proud of it. Very excited
0: and and lots of wrestlers involved in it, including today's uh, subject matter, Al Snow.
1: Yeah, I interviewed Al for the book. Obviously, I mean, Al will probably laugh when he hears this. I'm not trying to say that he's old enough to have wrestled the (laughs) Sheik in his prime. Although, ironically, he could have wrestled the Sheik because the Sheik wrestled well into the 90s, which is Mm -hmm. insane. But, uh, But what I talked to him about mainly was that he grew up in that area. So he grew up in Ohio and he watched the Sheik on TV when he was a kid, when he was a young wrestling fan. And then he got to meet him in locker rooms and be around him and a lot of people that he trained, like Rob Van Dam and Sabu and stuff. So he had a, a big impact on him. So we talked about that. He was It was really, really helpful, actually.
0: That's excellent. And the Al Snow interview, as you'll hear, is so fun. I mean, I got told he was an absolute gentleman and he is uh, very passionate about wrestling, obviously, as you've seen on various training videos and seminars that he has uh, been a part of but uh, tons of fun nothing was off the table and uh, we hope you very much enjoy this week's interview with Al Snow the newest recipient the newest recipient of a Toy's action figure which is tons of fun and we'll see you on the other side. and welcome to another edition of the official Cella toys podcast on grapple arcade it is my honor to be joined by our new co-host the legendary brian solomon writer of pwi magazine and much much more historian he'll fill in all the gaps that i don't know there's many of them and uh <laughs> no <laughs> that's the thing start with a really good introduction and then we can go downhill from there with i'm the sorry hard. no
1: you <laughs> Yeah. you were breaking up a little there pablo i'm sorry but uh no i i didn't realize that i was legendary that's the first i've heard but i'm i'm glad to hear it i'm glad to hear you think so you are legendary and uh,
0: a very we are very beardy people today as well which is uh you know not by design but uh you know i think it's a it's a good look we could start like a man band i think
1: um i'm copying you i don't <laughs> tell people this, but I'm, I'm trying to look like you i'm going to grow my hair out and everything well, I, I took it from Leaf Cassidy, you see,
2: so there you go. Um,
0: am I joking?
1: I don't know of many things
2: that people would take from Leif Cassidy.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> well, with me today, I have. I am honoured to say that I have uh, someone who is the new recipient of an official Teletoy's action figure. I have with me Mr. Al Snow. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, and I'm very honoured and very flattered to uh, be uh, – part of cello toys and, and to have an action figure. I'm very excited to, to have that come out. Um, I've seen some of the artwork uh, that they have and uh, I'm blown away. I really, really, really can't wait for, for it to come out.
0: They really captured the, not just your likeness, but captured the spirit of Al Snow, that sort of craziness. And, uh, and it's the first time in a good long while that an Al Snow figure has come with an actual head, um with yes which is uh you know as a lot of people may know that your first action figure there were issues with that
2: two women that were assistant professors of communications at a college in georgia wrote a letter to the atlanta constitution a newspaper in the united states complaining that without doing any actual what you know why do that do any actual homework or research or anything on the character um, you know, complained that, that my action figure was a training manual for future spousal abusers, which I then did suggest to Jack specific that they should include something like that with the toy, but they thought that was not good marketing. So, <clears throat> and as a result, Walmart and Walmart was the initial store that banned it from uh, their sales, and they still don't. They won't. They still won't sell it to this day. I'm number. I moved down to number six. I was number five um pregnant barbie is number one
0: so <laughs> did that did that make the interest in the figure you know multiplied because there was such you know widespread attention oh, yeah. drawn to it
2: yeah so, yeah and the- it sold out that was i was a national news event for about a week and a half it was awesome
1: <laughs> i remember that I, re- I remember when that whole thing happened i'm still i'm still amazed to this day how much power random people can have like that because you hear that happening you know and it always seems to be Walmart somebody sees something at Walmart you would think with the kind of people walking around that store that's uh, that wouldn't happen <laughs> as often. but but they'll see something and someone re- will complain and then the next thing you know it's gone that there's no uh I don't know uh, there's no kind of uh, courage to stand up to anything like that no matter how ridiculous the complaints may be
2: that was the precursor to social media and the cancel culture. So, yeah. you know, the vocal minority now control everything. Um, it is not the majority because the majority are usually quiet and complacent. It's the vocal minority that uh, squeaky squeaky wheel gets the grease. And the more they squeak, the more grease they get, you know. That's
0: it. So. Walmart, the uh, bastion of mor- morality. Um <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had a few action figures uh, come out during that time um you know because yeah. the, the attitude era everything was being made and i remember uh, I, when uh you came to newcastle in the uk uh, you were the opening match against the brooklyn brawler uh, and i had a uh, the yeah. alsino t-shirt with the head and the the spiral behind it and everything so did you have uh, um did you have a hand in your merchandise at that point because i'm guessing that was your
2: first yeah okay no i didn't have a hand in the merchandising and and at that point and um you know the the one thing that i think that i need to clear up and i try to clear up quite frequently is that you know when i did the what does everybody want what does everybody need what does everybody love i wasn't uh, i truly did not intend for that to be a double entendre even though it came across as that and if people would actually have paid attention they would have realized i was getting jealous of the head because I had spent all these years wanting to be successful and be the thing that everybody wanted and needed and loved. And instead it was, it was the head. I was, I was setting up, I was setting up a potential storyline where I would get jealous of the head and, you know, treat it like a real person, you know, and do just like, you know, wrestlers do in the back where I would attack it and cut promos on it and have matches with them and things like that. So, Um, You know, it's, it was, people couldn't see beyond that though. Um, You know, they, they didn't understand it fully. And that was, I take responsibility for not explaining that to Vince and uh, having that conversation. But, uh, um, you know, I just assumed that everybody would understand as much as I did and uh, they didn't.
0: Well, do you think it was just like a sign of the time? If it was any of the time, it would have been taken at face value and you wouldn't have had commentators. No. Right,
2: okay. No, no. You know, it just was what it was. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, if you were to go back and ask kids, kids would under, kids understood. Kids, you know, they didn't have that connotation that, that adults did. And kids understood that I was talking about the actual head every time I did that. So, you know.
0: I I didn't understand head cheese at the time. I was very innocent.
2: Yeah. Well, head (laughs) cheese was, um, was, you know, was just a, it was the real whole situation was, is that Steve Blackman had such a lack of personality that I, my, you know, antics made his not having a personality a personality so that he could, he could be the straight man to me. And, um, you know, head cheese was just something that Blackman tried to, Uh, get the fans to chant at him, you know, so he could have a reason to get upset. And that was, it wasn't really supposed to be the name of the team. It just kind of evolved like that.
1: And how did he feel about, uh, how did Steve feel about being portrayed as basically the boring guy of this team?
2: He enjoyed it. He had a great time, you know, and it wasn't, you guys have, you know, it wasn't about him being the boring guy. It was about him being the straight man. About him being a no-nonsense killer—that's what it was—and you know—and then me being this, you know, other side of the coin where I was pu- putting him in ridiculous situations that he had to try to deal with and getting exasperated with me, you know—that was what made us entertaining and uh, um, made us fun to watch, you know, as a team. Unfortunately, in in the ring, we didn't really think as well as we should have um but outside the ring we did great it was it was awesome literally um on smackdown when we were doing those uh, vignettes um we were like the highest rated segment on the show <laughs> A week after week
0: it was very funny and one thing that really fascinates me uh, um is changes of ring attire so when you turned heel in 99 on on McFoley, you went to just a plain black singlet. Was it just everything you could possibly do to make people not like you anymore? Change the music, become more serious. Plain black, like take away everything that was previously Al Snow
2: at that point. No, no, I just, um, you know, the office wanted me to get a different outfit, and um, and the uh, the um, wardrobe girls uh, weren't, you know, keen on making me anything but they finally made me that one singlet and that was that was all I, all I got until <laughs> another wardrobe girl named Yolanda um showed up and she started designing me tights and uh and you know singlets to go with them and um, I just stopped wearing the singlets because I was you know the tights looked fine by themselves so I just wore the wore the tights
0: it's kind of a weird thing. Now with wrestlers, they consciously try to have as many ring gears as possible because they know they're going to get an action figure of it or end up on the video game or something yeah. like
2: that. <laughs> true, yeah. Yeah, that is true. It's very smart. You know, I think Tyrus uh, was one of the first guys to do that where he, made, he went out of his way to have different outfits so that he could, uh, you know, have different action figures and, and such. Smart, very smart.
1: Very smart. So I, one, I was just thinking of that when I I just saw Edge at Madison Square Garden uh, at SmackDown, and he was wearing Bret Hart's colors. And the <laughs> first thing I thought of was, "Wow, that's going to be a great collectible figure, Edge in the Bret Hart colors."
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, smart. It's a, it's a great way to market it yourself and you know increase your sales. You know, so
0: one one thing I found particularly interesting about the the Leaf Cassidy transformation into Al Snow uh when you were still with the with Marty you were kind of the goofy you know loving the monkeys and the Partridge family and all that kind of stuff I'm a huge monkeys and Partridge family fan so I probably identify with Al Snow on, on you know really sad uncomfortable levels um or with Leaf Cassidy at least um there was kind of a period before Marty left where leaf stopped being goofy and happy and was the there must have been a conscious decision at that point i mean but you weren't becoming sick of the gimmick at that point in you know storyline sense was the a a long-term thinking with that
2: yeah um i was just figured that anybody that was happy would have to be a little unhinged and (laughs) i wanted to start to um show that side of the of it the the other side of the coin so to speak of uh you know um it being a little bit emotionally unstable and uh, being a little more aggressive and um you know um did a couple things where you know i i would lose it just lose control and after i had lost a match and to exhibit that so i was just trying to take the you know take the uh take things in a new direction reinvent myself and and get a get a new rug
0: was there any worry after Marty had um, left because i've I, it seemed that survivor series 96 she teamed up with owner bulldog against furnace lafon in the Godwins it was a great match but Marty injured his leg really early on and that seemed to be the last time he was on TV maybe until he showed up in wCW so um, at that point, yeah. were, were there any plans for Leaf Cassidy? Leaf ended up being on some in your houses against Mark Merrow and Flash Funk, and they were great show openers as well. Really set the uh, the tone for the event. Was it kind of didn't yeah. you could rely on Leaf Cassidy or yourself, but they didn't really have an idea for what to do with Leaf at that point.
2: Yeah, no, but you know, it's up to me to just to give them something to create. To you know, um, that's the responsibility. To, of the wrestler is that when they go through the curtain, it's their responsibility to give you know Vince something to work with. and you know contrary to popular belief, they're not limited like they say they are. Um, you know Vince wants guys to succeed and wants them to get over and um, and trusts and relies on the talent to go out there and do whatever they need to do to do exactly that, you know and give him something that he can exploit that he can capitalize on and that together that you can make money with. So, you know, I just took it upon myself and, you know, hoping that something would click and, and then he could take it and run with it.
1: No, I just wanted to mention, cause I, am sure you were probably getting to this, but the thing that always blows me away and you, you're in a class by yourself here, as far as I'm concerned, is at one point you were playing three different characters at the same time, pretty much. I mean, when you were Leaf Cassidy, you were Avatar, And you were Shinobi, the ninja. I mean, you you talk about action figure possibilities.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. 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 It's just that, unfortunately, with, you know, two of those, I didn't quite exploit the opportunities that were given to me to their fullest extent. So, you know, ultimately, I have to take responsibility for it, you know.
1: But do they, I mean, do they come to you and say, is it something that just sort of happens or do they specifically say, you know what, we want you to be more than one wrestler. That's the idea we have. <laughs> uh,
2: no, it just sort of happened. It just circumstantially occurred, you know, at the time, you know, um, and and I think they were trying to find uh, a place for me and I was trying to find my own place as well, you know, and um uh, and it was the wrong, I was focused on the wrong things. You know, I was focused on going out there and having a great match and and being a great wrestler and not being a great attraction um, and being selfish at the times that I needed to be selfish and and worried more about being a star than I should have been worrying about just being a great performer. I should have really been more concerned about being a great star and uh, and protected myself. You know, when I was out there and I didn't, I was unselfish and, you know, I just really, all I cared about was the quality of the match and, you know, uh, um, and, and I didn't see those opportunities for what they really were that I could have capitalized on and, and uh, had a completely different run.
0: And the thing is, what I think people forget about Avatar was the the it was very much related to pop culture at the time with Power Rangers and you look at Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and you look at what WCW eventually did with uh, Mortis and Glacier and stuff like that. Um, it, yeah, you know, people kind of. Do forget that you know something like Avatar could have really have had legs, especially in '95, when it could be argued a lot of the the characters and gimmicks that were being brought in weren't really relatable to kids or pop culture.
2: Avatar... Yeah, it could have, and and you know the the uh, one of the problems, one of the challenges for that character is that, um, um, is that I came from just prior. Uh, you know, working on the independence and, but especially working in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Um, You know, I think Vince envisioned, you know, all of a lot of the stuff that I was doing in Smoky Mountain, which was, you know, I, I got to a point, not exaggerating, but I got to a point where I could stand on the ring apron in the center of the ring, in the center of the ring apron, and I could spring up, turn in midair and land on the top rope with both feet and moonsault into the ring. And, I could do that because it was a they were steel cables. Um, You know, the the cables were uh, much more taut and um, they were much more easier to balance on. And and when I got up to WWF at the time, you know, nobody did anything really off the top rope during that period because the the rings were so hard and so unforgiving. And the ropes, the real rope were, were kept very loose. They weren't. They didn't have anybody. Utilizing them for those kinds of things. So, you know, I came up there and, and, and was hamstrung because I couldn't do a lot of the aerial stuff that I had been doing um, down in Smoky Mountain, a lot of the springboard stuff and, uh, you know, other other things that you see now that are pretty commonplace there, but that's because they've changed the dynamics, the engineering of the rings over the years. And about back then, Nobody did any of that kind of stuff so they didn't have a necessity to to you know augment the engineering of the very ring itself
1: i always remember as a kid when i was watching that the the wwf announcers whether it was gorilla monsoon or whatever they would always put over how you know underneath that tape the it's it's a steel cable going around the ring and they would sell how when you when you knock into it you know you could really get hurt and then when I came to work there, and I would see them putting the ring together, and I saw that it was really just a rope, I would <laughs> I think Gorilla Monsoon, you lied to me. You lied to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, WWF is is still uses real rope. Uh, Vince uh, always will use real rope, and it's fine. It'll work as well. But you have to pull the rope even tauter, even tighter than um, you know regular steel cable. You can't. Um, you know, get the same uh, balance and the same spring off of a regular uh, rope, uh, unless you really have that thing pulled tight. And the negative to real rope compared to steel cables that that you always constantly have to restretch that rope because it gets stretched out, and you've got to constantly retighten it up. Um, you know, if you have a a ring that you leave set up and you train in quite frequently, steel cable is really better better to go that way than it is with real rope.
1: Meanwhile, I remember that in, you know, when I'd watched WCW, it looked like they were basically using like garden hoses or something. I don't know. They were. like rubber. They were
2: using uh, aircraft cable and um, gasoline hose that went over top of it. And it, they were, the ropes were very hard. I mean, if you did not know how to properly um, hit the ropes and hit is not the right term, but. You know, that's what everybody says is hit the ropes. But you don't really hit them. You lean into them and you allow the rope to push you back out. And um, the, the aircraft cable really speeds up the action a lot more than uh, real rope does.
0: I guess Mick wouldn't have lost his ear if it was WWF ropes, potentially.
2: I probably He probably could have, yeah, just as well. You know, that situation can still happen. Um, you know, if you, they twist up too tight and then you can't get your head out, then, you know, it'll peel off your ear. It only takes about eight pounds of pressure to pull the human ear off of your head. So, you know, you could literally just grab, grab them with your hand and snatch it right off somebody's head if you wanted to in a fight.
1: Fun. I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking, Al, you were talking about, um you know, how the decisions you made back then and maybe being a little too giving and a little too selfless and how you, you maybe should have been a little more selfish. I always know, and this is my own personal experience of, you know, in the, obviously we all know a lot of times the business can be kind of cutthroat. People are always looking out for themselves and kind of uh, looking to, you know, it, it's, it's that whole kind of Carney mentality of, I have to kind of put myself over And I have to say, and this is my own experience of working there, I I remember in those days when you were there, you were always, I I mean this, I'm not just saying it because you're here, but you were one of the most down to earth, quote unquote, normal guys that I always found in the locker room that you weren't working an angle, you weren't being, you know, a carnet, you were just a guy. And I remember I would see you in the stands, you know, when the before the show and you'd be like reading V for Vendetta or something. And I would go, this is my guy. This is a, he's this is my guy. And I, I always yeah. I always liked that and appreciated that about you. So that you. Counts for anything, it, it meant a lot.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And what I mean by being more selfish is during the match itself, not outside the ring. And, you know, um, um, I was always very cognizant of, of realizing that it takes everyone no one is more important than anyone else to you know make that show happen and it take there is no unimportant person there it takes every single person to to make that happen and everybody behind the scenes to make make the, the the talent look like you know appear as much like stars as possible sometimes in spite of themselves you know so um you know i was always very keenly aware of that and I did the carny thing when I first broke in the business back in the day, you know, that was, that was how I was broke in and, um, and, you know, I was taught to work, um, the, in the true sense of the word, not what the, what it's become these days, the true sense of what a work is. A work is to make someone believe a lie and, um, and to con them and, uh, but it didn't sit well with me and I, I grew, I had a conscience and I decided I wasn't going to treat people like that. So, because I knew I wouldn't want to be treated that way myself. So I just try to treat people the way I would like to be treated as well. Pretty simple rule. (laughs) When with
0: vernacular such as work or heel or face or whatever, like any kind of wrestling vernacular like that, was it sure um, you hearing it being used incorrectly a lot, which is why you know, I've seen you, I've seen videos of you in training schools, and you are incredibly serious to the point where I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm actually nervous about interviewing you because I thought you were going to just shout at me, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but did you feel no, I just it,
2: get very passionate?
0: <laughs> so, yeah. did you feel that it was kind of um, because no one else was necessarily doing it that it was your job to make sure things were taught right? Because when you break down why a match happens or what things mean. I've never seen a, a trainer on video because I, I, I'm not remotely an athlete. Um, I've never seen anyone sort of break it down so logically, but in a way that you drill it into people's heads because it's so important. Was there just a, a moment when you realized that you had to be there for the next generation to get them to understand properly?
2: Yes, because it's become a, so so much of a detachment from things. And there's a big popular belief that the business has somehow changed, that magically this generation or, or just prior had reinvented the wheel. It's no longer around. It's hexagonal rock, tagged something new. And that's that's complete and utter BS. It's not real. It's not true. It's it's an excuse, uh, you know, an excuse to justify what they want to do Um, because they think that it's going to be cool. And um, there are things that are intrinsic um, and are important um, to the art of professional wrestling that used to be passed down from veterans to the younger generation. Uh, And not just, you know, um, words, uh, uh, ideas, um, directions, uh, etiquette, um thing you know uh, behavior uh code of ethics that were uh, applicable only in the wrestling business were used to be passed down and that was what made the wrestling business what the wrestling business was and allowed it to survive and not only survive but continue to thrive and um that's been that's got lost um, nobody teaches it anymore and as a result you what you see is a lot of you know, the talent being directed by um, uh, people that have access to information, but they have no real knowledge of what it is that we do or why we do it. And, um, you know, uh, I feel it's important because what's gonna happen is the bastardization of the art form of professional wrestling is gonna continue to be, uh, Continue to increase to the point to where it will no no longer be professional wrestling, and you know the only reason that the art form has survived as long as it's survived and continues to be a part of the fabric of pop culture, even though it's maligned by people everywhere, um, is because of that very fact. And once it once it changes, truly does change where they get their way and they truly change it, um, then it'll it'll cease to exist you know they'll it will become sports entertainment it will no longer be professional wrestling you know I think
1: there's already a lot of that that goes on on the indies where the a lot so much of the indie scene is sort of like this mentality of like well they've taken the idea that this is theater right but they've taken it to its furthest conclusion like where we're we're just going to literally tr- treat it like it's performance art and nothing else, and, and it's and it is like you said, becoming something that it was never meant to be. I think. Let's make let's make this completely clear.
2: I want people to everywhere that's listening to understand. Number one, this is not theater. You're not an actor. You never will be unless you go into acting. You go into actual theater. You go into film, then you will be an actor. Until then, you're not. You are not a, you're not even a worker right now you, because you're not working anyone. You're not making anyone believe the singular lie in professional wrestling. Professional wrestling is unique into itself. It is not performance art. It is not theater. It is a con. It is a one that the audience wants to be conned. They want to believe In the lie, and there is only one lie in professional wrestling, I cannot emphasize this enough, and that is that the outcome is predetermined. We all know it, and the audience even has known it since 1920 in in the United States, and yet they have showed up by the thousands for decades to watch it live and in TV because when they arrive, they can believe that that outcome has a consequence to it even if it's just that one wrestler doesn't get paid that night and the other one gets more the money gets the purse or one gets more money than the other one that consequence without that believing in the lie there's no consequence to anything that physically is done to either wrestler so it's not theater it's not performance art it is a it is a it's a story a physical storytelling art form done within the context of a competitive situation is what it is but it is unquestionably not theater and it is unquestionably not performance art it is it is trying to make them believe the one thing that's intrinsically fake about wrestling which is that we're out there really trying to win and not lose making them believe in our intent nothing more
1: That's why one of the things that bothers me the most, and and I hate to poo poo it because what, you know, it's people in the audience having fun and I don't want to be that guy. But when you see these crowds today, where they're not really cheering for one guy or the other, they're applauding the performance of the match. And it's like that, this is awesome chant that everybody, every wrestler now wants to get that chant. But when you hear that, it's like, they don't really care who's winning or losing just as much as the match is entertaining them. And even though that may have been kind of subconscious in the back of fans minds for a very long time, now it's just gone. Now it's just, we just want to be entertained. And the idea of who wins and loses is kind of secondary. Well, if that's the case, if that's really the case, if the majority, not the vocal minority,
2: but the majority of the audience really feel that way then and i ask these questions of talent that propose that it has changed all the time to me and nobody's yet to give me an answer and that is as a promoter number one first and foremost why am i paying a referee to even bother to be in the ring with you if what you say is true i'm wasting money okay number two why am i paying commentators to basically commentate your match and try to Portray it as if it's a competitive situation, like it's a fight, like like you're actually out there, like it's boxing or MMA. I'm wasting money. Three, why am I bothering to buy titles that cost thousands of dollars for you to supposedly compete for, to raise up the ranks, to win, even though apparently the audience only cares about your performance, not whether you win or lose. And the best question that no one has an answer for when I ask them is if what you say is true, why is it when I ask you to lose, you get the boo boo face? Because <laughs> if I, you genuinely believe right. as a wrestler that the audience no longer cares anymore, then why are you getting upset and walking around pouting when I just asked you to lose to the other guy? Right. Then I got the- it. Why don't we, because I'm going to I'm going to announce it here, because I own OVW. So in OVW, what I'm going to do is I'm going to eliminate the referee. I'm going to have both entrants, and then we're going to decide who wins by a round of applause. And whoever gets the most applause takes a bow, and they get to move on. It kind of no, feels,
0: I, I, I... to a point, though, um, in terms of the fans not necessarily wanting a wrestler to win or lose now, but then you hear that if they feel that the performer deserves to win because they're a better performer, not because they want them to win in the context of a storyline or a match. It's kind of like this weird meta thing now where the person deserves to win because they deserve that push in their mind. Um, it, it And then it feels that what a wrestling company has to do is create what shoot angles for only specific angles where you think oh this could actually be real because it's based off real life but then it sort of confirms that everything else definitely isn't real as a result of that but then if you start doing everything as a worksheet then obviously nothing is real then either it's kind of it feels like this weird balancing act um from my point of view so why are
2: you only paying attention to the vocal minority instead of trying to pay attention to and market your product? To the vast majority, which really are just casual fans, fans that don't go on websites, that don't read internet reports, that aren't on Twitter, that don't care. All they want, not on Twitter. They don't, all they do is they think, if they're flipping through the channels, they go, hey, I like this guy. He's really cool. I'd like to be like him. I'm going to watch him. Why are we not marketing to those people? Because back during the Attitude Era, that was what made it so successful. Back during the 80s, that was what made it so successful. During any time in the territorial regional days, that was what made a territory hot, was when they were able to capture the casual audience. That's when we really made money. But why are we so caught up in just this vocal minority, this small niche audience that the performers themselves only perform to, or only care about their opinion and not about the average person that's going to buy their t-shirts, not only in Walmart, but in, in every department store in the mall where you're going to not make just a little bit of money, but you're going to make millions of dollars. You know, and the sad thing is the wrestling business has always been the wrestler's business. And unfortunately, the wrestlers are now being so brainwashed to be dictated by, um, that niche audience that that's all they care about
1: when i interviewed uh, rob van dam last year for the chic book that i wrote the book i also interviewed you al for that if you remember um rob yes. rob has this attitude now where it's almost like an attitude of regret if you talk to him about this because he talks about how so many people have tried to copy him and he's one of those guys that like kind of everybody saw him as a kid and said, I want to do that stuff. And he said, but what they don't realize is the fundamental grounding that I got when I was trained, you know, the Sheik wouldn't even let him leave his feet for like half a year. You know, he was just doing headlocks and go binds and takedowns. And it's like th- these kids that emulate Rob, they're really just copying one aspect of what he does and not understanding the fundamentals of it at all. And And he almost feels like responsible for for doing damage inadvertently to the business it's it's interesting to hear him talk about that
2: it's not his responsibility what it, what ultimately it is is all of our responsibility because what's really become the degradation of the, the art of professional wrestling is the proliferation of the amount of schools um we have thousands of schools where We have made the entrance into the wrestling business as easy as turnkey, just walk up, pay your money, and you walk through the door. Um, And we have people that are training people without any repercussions, no responsibility, um, not being held accountable, and they're not teaching them any basics, any fundamentals. They're not taking them through the right processes. They're not teaching them even just the simplest thing of what what are these real terms? What is the vernacular that you're using every day within the business, and you don't even know what they mean? You're misusing the terms. They don't teach anything other than in a matter of about eight weeks. You know, uh, here's how you bump. Here's how you hit the ropes. Here's how a couple moves, and here's how you string together a couple things. And uh, hey, you're ready for a match. And that's absurd. It's 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 mind boggling to me. Okay, and I'll get on my high horse for a second. My wife, who is a licensed masseuse, had to go to a state-accredited school. She had to complete, be taught by a state-accredited teacher. She had to complete a number of state-accredited hours. And then before she could even take a test, she had to uh, require to take a certain amount of residency um, training. In professional – the odds of my wife injuring somebody are – Present, but minimal at best during the massage. The odds of you injuring yourself or someone else when you enter a ring to perform the art of professional wrestling, those odds are there, and they're very dramatic, and they're greatly increased every year because of the lack of understanding and proper training around the world now that is present that someone is eventually going to either have a life-altering injury or a life-ending And, and the number of life-ending injuries are happening at an exponential rate because of this lack of training and this lackadaisical attitude of entrance into the sport of professional wrestling, the business of professional wrestling. It's, 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 uh, it's fake. Anybody can do it. And this, this nonchalant attitude that everybody has is exactly why we have the degradation of the business that we have. Um, and, and it's, it's getting out of control and, um, you know, I went, I, I, I'll be honest and it's not a popular thing and it's not something I would have ever seen myself doing because I hate authority with a passion, but I went and spoke to the governing, you know, the the athletic commissions in Maryland and uh, Missouri and, and, um, you know, Louisiana and, uh, couple of South Carolina, all turned me down. I even went to the Kentucky uh, Board of Boxing Wrestling Commission Board personally and, and, you know, and was turned down there to even just have a training license, something to ensure that these people are taking the time to be taught correctly, the basics and the fundamentals, to limit potential for injury and to raise the level of professionalism and, and was denied. And because I knew that the wrestling business itself was never going to police itself because we're all too many. We're too much. Whore, we're too much. We got the horror in us too much, you know, and as such, you know, we're going to continue to see, um, you know, guys that are, are very poorly trained or not trained at all. And, and they're going to be licensed as professional wrestlers, as professional you know, business sport sport, and business of professional wrestling and represent this business and this art in the public eye and are going to continue to drag it down. You know, um, there should be standards. We should have them. We should hold people accountable. We used to. When I was brought into the business, there were so few people that would train you because you were held directly accountable because it was like an apprenticeship program. You were t- the person that trained you took responsibility for you. And if you did anything that somehow negatively affected business somewhere, some way, word got back and then it came on your shoulders and it affected the way you made a living. And that was why guys were so reticent to let people in because they just couldn't trust everybody to take into account and hold their, their reputation as important as their own, you know, and, and those days are gone, and, and, but that's our choice. You know, we, we allow it, you know, we allow um, and, and continue to allow it. That began back in, you know, around rest, back around WrestleMania three. You know, I, I, that was like a, a banner year, um, both in the sense of the fact that we now started to allow people that have access to information, but no real knowledge, to dictate based on their opinions uh, the the quality of performance in the ring, and and then that was the you know creation of you know the monster factory where you know which was awesome for you know Larry Sharp you know he was right across the river in New Jersey and you know he had uh, access to a ton of you know mainstream media that came and covered him and you know really you know he but he opened the door. Um, to the wrestling business at that point, and you know if you had the money you could train and to the point where Larry started selling franchises. Of, of the monster factory to other veteran wrestlers I didn't know that I remember him yeah, yeah I remember him selling a, a franchise into Charlie Fulton over in Marion Ohio. Uh, you know. Um, you know so though you know those days you know, the days of where it was, it was, it was very difficult. It was easier to be a made man in the mafia than it was to become a wrestler. Um, that's the truth. That's not an exaggeration. And, and, but those days are gone, you know, and, and as a result, then you, you know, we're going to reap what we sell.
0: An example of that is because I'd heard the, the monster factory was open uh, at the request of Buddy Rogers for his son, David. Um, and when you're the son of Buddy Rogers and you can't even make it because you know at the time standards were so high then i think that probably hey there it. were
2: there were a lot of sons that couldn't make it okay. dick the bruiser's son Sheik's son uh, bobo brazil's son um it, it, for some reason those genes don't just always run straight downhill so you unless know unless you have a dad unless you have a dad who's a promoter that well, even then that, that, that did help. help it helps but help it's Eric what yeah. <laughs> Um. <laughs> no, and hey, hey, hey. In in all fairness, this is it, honestly Eric Watts was really very talented. It, it just Eric Watts was put in a spot before he had the experience and the understanding and the polish to handle it. The same with David Flair. You know, those kids um a lot of times are put in places that they're just not ready for, and they can't. They haven't developed to be able to carry that responsibility. So. That's that's not really you know it's not a fair assessment of of, of some of those guys now uh, Bruiser son and 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 Sheik's son and they were put straight into things that it didn't matter how long they'd been doing it it just was what it was.
0: I would love to interview Eric Watts. So I've got nothing against Eric Watts and Chad Fortune. Yeah. I want to interview Techno Team Two Thousand. Basically, I love the gimmicks. You know. Yeah. I don't After think that, I don't too. think they knew what to do with that Techno Team Two Thousand. Uh well they
2: didn't because it wasn't them and characters don't work. Um, in order for a gimmick to work, it has to be an aspect of the person's real personality that they just turn the volume up on. Vince McMahon, quite honestly, is Vince McMahon. Just he becomes a caricature of who he really is. You know, Steve Austin really is Steve Austin. That's why it works. You know, those those guys that were really stars were are are people that who it was who they really are because you can sense it, you can feel it that's that's again that's a difference in it that's why it's not theater or performance art because you're you are that person when you walk to the ring you just turn the volume up really loud because you're not acting you're just being you
0: so when when you do uh podcasts with fans i mean i'm a fan but i'm lucky enough to be working with cello and i've i've been lucky enough to interview a lot of wrestlers as well so i try to be as respectful as possible and keep it about their career and try not to analyze wrestling too much. Cause then I feel like I'm out of my depth because it's fine doing it with your friends sort of thing, as you say, but I'm also a collector and a mark in hopefully the best sense of the word. I mean, do you feel the word mark gets unfairly used or do you feel that it's,
2: you know, cause I know. I think mark- it's used in a derogatory term yeah. when really it shouldn't be. I think it should be used more in a complimentary term. And, and the reason I say that is that really, ultimately, uh, when it really began, Mark was, was a term just where you marked somebody, because the, the, if you were uh, uh, one of the carnies that ran the game, you know, you, you know, the only way you ate that night was if you made money. And the only way you made money is if you got somebody to play your game. And the only way you could get somebody to play your game was to identify the person that had money so that you didn't get a lot of people up there standing around just wasting space and wasting your time. That was how important it was to try to make money because you only had one night in the town or maybe a certain number of nights in the town that you had to try to make as much as you could as quick as you could. So it wasn't about it was about identifying and putting the effort where you knew you could maximize the results. And um, and, and marks used as a derogatory term, I think, when really the biggest marks for the wrestling business are, are the wrestlers, the guys that are in it. You know, look at what we do and what we, you know, and we do it because we love it so much. So it, its I don't think being called a mark is, is a derogatory or a negative thing. I think it's a compliment because if if you're a mark, well, and trust me, I'm a, I'm a bigger mark because I've been doing this for 39 years, you know. So how much of a mark am I? It's true, but sometimes
0: wrestlers now use, like really well-known wrestlers will call fans marks because they're not... Not into again, what they see on TV, again, but they sort of criticizing someone for like uh, Jim, they don't Con- understand. Jim Cornette. They'll say that he's you know bitter or whatever, or he, they'll use those kind of things, and then they'll get called Mark for that. Jim
2: Jim's, Cornette's, Cornette's not bitter. But no, Cornette's no, I don't think he is. About. Yeah, and he cares very much about the wrestling business, That's and true. then in he just gets frustrated because again, it's 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 that sense of well, now it's theater, it's performance art, it's not what it is, and and. You know, and, and it's this this BS that everybody tells themselves that, oh, it's changed. It's evolved. It's grown. It's developed. It has not changed. In 1920, they were selling one thing, and that was the finish. That's it. In 2021, we are still selling one thing. That's the finish. In 2021, we're selling who the wrestler is and why he's in that ring. In 1920, we were selling who the wrestler is and why he's in that ring. If you watch boxing, the only reason you want to watch a boxing match is because of who's fighting and why they're doing it. If you want to watch MMA, the only reason you watch MMA is because who's fighting and why are they doing it? What's at stake? Same thing. You don't reinvent the wheel. That hasn't changed regardless. It's because people now have not been taught it and to justify their mistakes, they say it has become something different. And again, if it has, I'm gonna stop paying referees, I'm gonna start stop paying commentators and ring announcers, and I'm gonna stop buying belts.
0: Well, for me, the um, the movie match was kind of the death of a lot of um, stuff for me. They're not,
2: you can do you can do cinematic matches, but you can do the beauty of professional wrestling is this, okay? This is the magic of professional wrestling. If you can get people to believe in who you are as a performer, truly believe in who you are, you can do absolutely anything you want to do as long as it's within the context of a competitive situation.
0: Well, that's the thing. Uh, a lot of the cinematic matches that were, I mean, it, but saying that I'm a fan of The Undertaker and he's always done supernatural things that you couldn't necessarily explain Sort of unless Undertaker paid the pyro guy to set off the fireworks or something like that, or you know, paid the lighting guy to lift the lights up and stuff like that. I think it's point of view camera shots is always the thing that, um, because unless the wrestler has a camera on his head, we cannot see his point of view, and it kind of breaks the fourth wall in the wrong kind of way for me. And but I think
2: a lot of people sure, because watch- that's that's where that prevalent idea that it's now theater and performance are now taking place. Mm-hmm. Instead of treating it still and viewing it and filming it as if it's still just you're watching a competitive fight. It's just in an unnatural setting. Um, Now you're doing point of view shots. That's where you've got people that are directing or are behind the scenes that don't understand the intrinsic parts of the art.
0: I think a lot of people who watch now as well, because I I did some, you know... uh media and filmmaking and stuff like that and it, they don't I don't think people question now the fact that you do see point of view shots or things that couldn't feasibly happen where if you're in a small room and there happens to be like five or six camera angles but you don't see the other cameramen and all that kind of thing I just think people don't think about that anymore and if they don't I, I guess it's you know certainly not my place to judge um that that is the thing I think you yeah. know that Not my
2: circus, not my monkeys. I wouldn't shoot it that way. So, you know, I would shoot it a different way.
0: So, Should we ask some fun questions? If you could be a dog, uh, what kind of dog would you be?
2: Oh, uh, if I could be a dog, what kind of dog would I be? A really fat, lazy one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) At what point did you, was there just a a, a light bulb moment when you, because you were always in shape, but now you're like this hench, incredible Hulk. Dude, you know, um, you know, and the comic book, you know, that just came out. It's not that inaccurate now. So you know, um, and all those all those action figures you had with the six packs and everything, you know, Um, was there just a moment? Was it? Was it age? Was it kind of? Did you get to the top of the stairs one day and you were out of breath? We just
2: (laughs) no. uh, Well, I'd still do that, but um, (laughs) um, no, I just if you Google George Hackenschmidt. Um, He was a a wrestler from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, one day I I pulled him up and uh, he looked amazing. And um, I started doing more investigation. And I stumbled upon a website. It's an actual UK website. It it was called Um, goldenageofstrongmen.com or UK, something.uk um, it was it was a amazing website at the time it had um, strong men and professional wrestlers that were from the late 1800s on up you know up to Charles Atlas um, in the 1950s and 60s and um, you could download you can't do it now but I don't know why but they had their training manuals that each of the respective, uh, athletes had, and they had a section on Indian, um, um, fitness. Uh, they have a very long and, uh, storied, uh, culture, physical culture, um, and training and, uh, with the Palwani wrestlers and such. And, um, I started reading, um, the training manuals and, and things, because it, like if you look at George Hackenschmidt, I mean, he just looks incredible, and this is during a period of time where they didn't, they didn't know what carbs were, they didn't know what protein was, they, you know, they had no scientific uh, acumen um, in regards to training or anything. People just ate, and um, he looked amazing, and I thought I, I want to look like that guy, and I'm going to do whatever he does, and I started adopting. Uh, training methods and things of that nature um, um, similar to what those those guys did and and it started to change things they um, made, made a big difference um, you know uh, one of the biggest things I did was I started doing more compound and more functional movements and um, and that really started uh, creating development throughout I even spoke to I had a friend that was a strength Uh, and conditioning coach uh, for the olympics olympic teams he uh, went over and uh, um, did the strength training for the uh, chinese volleyball team and one of the things he said was that the uh, they did a university study uh, where they took three groups of people um, for three months and uh, one group was to strictly work their legs alone just their lower body very intensely and then the second group was to work both their upper and their lower bodies and then the third group was just to work their, train their upper body and a minimum of three days a week uh, for that period, they couldn't do more, they had to just do three days a week. And what they determined was that the group that only that worked only their upper body had a minimum amount of muscle gain and fat loss. Uh, the group that worked both had just slight increases in muscle gain and fat loss and the group that. Worked intensely. Their lower body alone had um, a maximum amount of muscle gain and fat loss from head to toe, um, and um, and it was it was all centered in and around uh, working their lower body. So, um, you know, throughout my career, there were times when I looked better than I did in other times, and that was because I would focus more on doing lower body training. Uh, and uh, you know, I've been tra- you know working out since I was sixteen. So I've done every possible, uh, routine that you can do. So, and,
0: um, I mean, you, you look amazing. And as I said, my friend, uh, she has serious daddy issues and has never found you more attractive.
2: Um, Hi, hey, Yes. <laughs> hey, how are you? Nice <laughs> to meet you. <laughs>
0: um, so and the and things uh, I interviewed Stevie uh, Richards last week, and he said that when he was in Writer Center, he got to wear shirt and trousers, and that was just you know when he didn't have to show his body on TV. That was an excuse to kind of pack the snacks a little. So like, did you did you feel that you could do that more when you were wearing like a shirt on or were covering more of your physique? I know.
2: No, I mean I've always you know wanted to be try to be his best I could. Times where I was better than other times. But you know the way that I train now, um, I'm both. I, I feel aesthetically I'm doing better, uh, and functionally I'm I'm doing better. Um, it helped the way I train now helps me to stay in better ring condition, and that's about it's about the only way that I've ever found to uh, prepare to be in ring condition without actually being in the ring. So
0: um have you seen that there's still a picture of you before you transformed your body on wikipedia it's like a 2016 picture i think oh, so yeah it's, someone probably, needs...
2: it's probably a horrible one too yeah sure.
0: <laughs> i think you kind of punched so, over so there might be a little role going on you know and yeah, i'm not, I'm not sure, one to criticize of course.
2: anyone's roles
0: you know uh but someone needs to get on that and uh and change that up i think
2: <laughs> change it up yeah, yeah. Um, so
0: what's what's the weirdest piece of merchandise you ever saw your face on
2: uh weirdest piece i think i saw uh diapers um <laughs> baby diapers i was on excellent you know i think that was pretty pretty odd and completely unexpected so
1: wow talk about the shits that's like literally yeah
2: wow. yeah that's the drizzling shits <laughs> so
1: what i want to do because i mean you you've done so much that
0: it's almost impossible to fit it in in 45 minutes but uh you know i i want to I feel that it's you know necessary that we uh, introduce a new segment into the show uh anyone who has this uh who used to have a centerfold in the WWF magazine um also got questioned uh did you did you answer the questions legitimately for this Oh yeah I did yeah <laughs> do you remember what well yeah. this is we're going to call this let's do the time warp again uh especially okay. since it's a Leaf Cassidy uh thing and I'm not quite as well, as sure. I should have been. As I as I search
2: for this, I love um, the Rocky. I love the Rocky horror picture show.
1: So. <laughs> uh, see, I can imagine. I, le- say, I just want to say, for the record, this issue is before my time as an editor, <laughs> at WWF, so I take no responsibility for
0: any of it. Uh, see, I also have because I'm. Huge '90s and '80s collector of stuff, so I have like all the magazines and everything. And uh, sorry, Brian, like I still was buying the magazines when you were writing for them as well. Um, in, the December, in the December, in the December '96 magazine, uh, there's a feature on the new rockers going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, which is in o- Ohio. Yeah. So um, I'm guessing you were a regular visitor. <laughs> I think, yeah. Uh, so were you a regular visitor anyway? Or? no.
2: <laughs> I went. I went. One, I went that one time. Um, and that was that was it. That was the only time I went. And no, I think I went back one other time. One other time with my kids, I took it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: So that's good. And, and you just goofed off for a few hours, I'm guessing, because it did look like you did. Like Bunch. you weren't taking this out yeah, all did. seriously. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it so, also helped that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is right across the street from the Gundarena. Arena, so it was sort of yes. a <laughs> little thing to do and there it was it's TV. An easy day. deal
2: to do. Now, um, yeah, I know it's that... an easy day to sneak out of the building, go hang out at the Hall of Fame for about three or four hours, and yeah. then head back to the building.
0: Now, I know that you still have this, because your wife wore it on an uh, Instagram yes, picture. at one
2: point, And i marked out
0: over that, I've got to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> so th- when, you, when you had this lustrous uh, mullet going on, I mean, was it easy to maintain? Yeah. I've been told that people wrestlers get mullets, so it stops the hair going in front of the eyes and makes life a bit easier. No, it's,
2: it's the only full-action hairstyle that's why i got it you know once i get hit it swings around from the back to the front you know it shows it shows more expression with your hair that way so Uh,
0: okay well um so i'm going to re-ask you some of these questions now this is 25 years ago which makes me feel old so um and all of these were answered as leaf cassidy as well so you know some of them um like Say say or Ahmed Johnson—they they were kind of able to speak about them in real, you know, in their real life. Whereas I don't uh-huh. know how much you have a connection with Leaf Cassidy, but uh, best advice ever received:
2: uh just keep rocking.
0: <laughs> not bad, but it, it, this doesn't really—it doesn't word as advice. Rock and roll will never die. That's not really advice, oh, though, this, is it? <laughs>
2: yeah. No, it's not really. That was a statement. <laughs>
0: Um, biggest thrill in life. Uh, to be a rocker. It it really was. And to get to Russell Shaw Michaels, who was your boyhood idol. Oh yeah, that
2: was my boyhood idol. Uh, even though I was older than John. <laughs> so. Um, if if I could have done it differently. Uh that one I don't remember. I don't remember that one.
0: I would never have given David Cassidy the secret to having a good hair day every day.
2: Wow, yeah, that's, yeah, that one, uh, there, there's no way I would have remembered that one.
0: I, I have a feeling that David Cassidy would have... Uh... I wouldn't
2: know, though. though. I, granted, I, I probably would have...
0: What's that? No, I, mean, I think David Cassidy would have had a restraining order against Leif Cassidy.
2: Oh, <laughs> Probably, I know Patrick Duffy has one against me, so... <laughs> um, favorite movie? Uh, yeah, I can't remember that one either. Can't remember the favourite movie.
0: So I don't know this. First Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, you
2: know? yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't seen that? <laughs> That's a classic. That's made Sean Penn's career. <laughs> Holy.
0: Um, f- favourite actress?
2: Um, God, I can't... Uh, she played the mom on uh, Partridge Family. Um, can't remember.
0: Um yeah, Eve Plum, that's Jan Brady for You Young. Oh, Jan Brady.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, Jan Brady. (laughs) I knew it was either Brady
2: Bunch or or Shirley Jones. Yeah. Shirley Jones was hot. Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) See the Brady the Brady Bunch movie, which came out in like 95. Um, there's a wedding band playing. And I know two of the musicians in that wedding band because they were in a band called Jellyfish, who were like big. Advocates of like 60s and 70s music as well, and I've been able to work with them. that's like my one, one claim to fame, except for interviewing you, obviously. Um,
2: yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> let's add this to the list. <laughs>
0: um, favorite, favorite actor,
2: uh,
0: I can't remember, I can't remember um, until Barry Williams, that's Greg Brady,
2: for oh, Williams. yeah, it's Greg Brady, balls. yes, yeah. yes.
0: Leaf Cassidy isn't the most three dimensional
2: character. <laughs> Not really, he didn't, (laughs) Leaf didn't have a lot of depth. Um,
0: Yeah. So what made him lovable though? You know, uh, Cloudy loved him in particular. Um,
2: Yeah, Cloudy (laughs) did, yes. um, Handsome Jimmy Shoulders, the greatest wrestling name ever. Handsome Jimmy (laughs) Shoulders. It sounded like a 1940s gangster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Favourite television show? Uh, That
2: was probably The Brady Bunch.
0: Yeah, The Partridge Family, Brady Bunch and Dance Fever.
2: Dance Fever, yes. Yeah, yes. favorite you band- as a kid I actually liked Soul Train better. So
0: I love Soul Train. There's a great documentary on Soul plane uh, Soul Train as well. Uh favorite band? Uh that was the monkeys. Yes. Is there anyone else according to Leaf Cassidy? Oh, there's not. <laughs> uh hobbies. Mickey
2: Dolans is a god. <laughs> um, what
0: what were Leaf Cassidy's hobbies?
2: Oh gosh, I, I can't remember. I can't remember what I would have said. Uh rock and
0: roll playing air guitar, playing pogs and collecting eight tracks uh yeah pogs
2: were very pos- uh, popular back then so yeah. i don't
0: know if, I don't know if Leaf or avatar ever got a pog there were lots of wwf pogs around that time I may have to
2: dig I don't through. think I don't think I did <laughs> I don't think leaf or avatar did um, <laughs> secret talent uh, i wouldn't I
0: couldn't even guess couldn't I'm, even guess I'm a great dancer. Oh, and that's
2: a lie. So
0: <laughs> Heels are allowed looks to like lie, I'm, so either, lie.
2: I'm literally having a full-body dry heave as I'm out on the floor.
0: <laughs> favorite sport besides wrestling?
2: This could I be can't, true. Can't. Oh, okay. What is it? Roller derby. Oh, yeah, yeah. I loved roller derby back in the day. Loved it.
0: Um, And now bear yeah. in mind the the time period. Our favorite athlete? Uh, Bruce Jenner. No, it's, it's not OJ Simpson Ebert. No, it's Marty Jannetty.
2: Oh, it's Marty Jannetty. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, favorite fast food?
2: Um, pizza, I think, was probably the answer.
0: Well, that, that was under favorite food, pizza. Favorite fast food was hamburgers oh. and French fries. But favorite oh, food, yeah. surely pizza, that counts as fast food as well. LeafCast yeah, was does, very yeah. unhealthy.
2: He was, actually. Um <laughs> And still is to
0: this day. I'd, I'd love to think where Leaf would be now.
1: Um, he would work in a record. He'd be store. a mess. Yeah, yeah, he'd be a mess. <laughs> um, There'd fit- be a behind the music Leaf Cassidy by now. I think. <laughs> yeah.
2: There'd be one. Yeah, he'd just he'd be a wreck. He'd just gotten out of rehab for about the thirty second time. You know.
0: Um, favorite video game. Now this could be a real one.
2: Uh. I don't
0: know back then. Uh, space Invaders or and asteroids.
2: Oh yeah, those would have been those would have been right back then even then. So
0: And uh per, last question, person you would most like to meet?
2: Probably Michael Michaels. No, nope, Barry Williams. Oh Barry Williams, Greg Brady, yeah. Mm-hmm. again I did have a shirt that would, uh, a greg is god uh t-shirt I used to wear too so <laughs>
0: I've, I've got a todd is god uh t-shirt for Todd rungren <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the thing is awesome. Leaf, Cass- Leaf Cassidy I mean this is July 96 and he's already got a a centerfold that's one of Marty's old gears isn't it I love that like it doesn't quite stretch over you similar tongue.
2: like yeah the um um the 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 um again the The seamstresses uh, weren't too keen on making us stuff, so they made us like one or two outfits, and that was it.
0: Yeah, Marty over said that uh, Sean got the better outfits because he was having relations with the uh, with the seamstress and um yeah, Marty
2: used to Marty used to say that a lot yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's a match with Sean and Marty at Royal Rumble 93 where Marty comes out looking like the Michelin tire man with these ribbons and everything and Sean comes out in a, a gold jumpsuit and looks like Elvis you know um <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> if i was yeah. sh- if i was sherry during that match i would not have went with marty looking like that <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> did you get to work with sensational sherry
2: much on. Uh, no no i'd spoken you know i knew sherry and and um was around her and stuff and she was a great person but i never really got to work with her so
0: uh th- again so many things that i could ask you but i think we should leave it on that bombshell of uh leaf Cassidy. I, and I, look all i'm saying is i am needling charles for a leaf Cassidy action figure so hopefully that'll um oh, that'll be great Hopefully that'll happen. So, but I don't think it's been confirmed whether head will
2: have real hair
0: or not. Like the the previous heads, I don't know. Um, but we'll yeah, see the them. previous
2: heads were just Barbie doll heads popped off. So
0: and then the, <laughs> and then the uh, the classic Superstars action figure came with a mini styrofoam head, which I thought was uh, yes, which was quite creative, since they probably still couldn't use an actual uh, decapitate. They could.
2: T- they just were scared that somebody <laughs> would have a reaction to it. So. Uh, there we are well um yeah the, well, we uh, can always do a part two sometime in the future as well if, if you are interested so i'm I'm more than happy to come back i would love to i mean i'm
0: I'm glad that you were uh you know satisfied by that hardcore level of journalism uh with those questions that that, that you would want to come <laughs> guys, back for a part two you know
2: you guys were really grilling me and uh really <laughs> strafing me across the coals so we're letting it
0: yeah. out there You've done and, lots of interview- yes. you've done lots of interviews though. Like there's, you know, everyone can find you talking about certain things on other interviews. We've got to make it different, you see.
2: Um, True, and I understand. I do, I do, and I, I do have a tendency to be repetitive as far as certain aspects of when people interview me because I, it, you know, when it comes to aspects of of the art of professional wrestling them, but don't worry, nobody actually listens. To me, when I speak, so I can repeat it all you want, and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry. There's better.
0: there's no depth to this podcast at all. I mean, I, I felt really out of my depth when you were actually talking about like the inner workings of the wrestling industry, and I'm just like, oh, I'll I'll just yeah. show up and ask you what kind of dog you would like to be. So you know, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, no, um, I'm I'm just so glad that the uh, the the Leaf Cassidy outfit still exists in some form. Um,
2: it does, yeah. It
0: does. Not not that I'm trying to, you know. Of you, like so, is so, is the so, is the avatar outfit, and so
2: does the shinobi outfit as well. Good lord,
0: I mean, I, I loved the raw in the smackdown when you came out dressed as avatar, and uh, you snapped into your senses, and you're like, you could have stuck a magnet up my ass and drug me through Fort Knox, and I still want to draw money wearing this outfit. <laughs> um, and and you were responsible for British Bulldog's uh, return as well when uh, Bulldog gave you the hardcore title dressed as Leaf Cassidy. In 1999, yeah. which I, I think people by the Attitude were had very short memories, and I don't know if many people remembered Leaf Cassidy. But I, don't, but.
2: I don't think so either, but I did,
0: and that's so, all that matters. So, yeah.
2: well, at least at least I reached one person. That's mm-hmm. that's what really matters. Great. I love I love you know everything about wrestling. I love to read about it. I love to learn about it. I you know to this day I still learn stuff all the time. I'm
0: really excited to read it as well and we will talk more about the uh the the chic book uh coming up as well and um I, again push for a chic action figure as well i think it has to be done
2: yeah me it holds a special place because i grew up you know in the in you know i, I was born in 63 so i grew up in the in the, you know during this the 70s and you know the the 60s and the 70s and that was the heyday of uh ed farhat's territory which he controlled um, you know, one of the most money making territories in the country historically, which was outside of the northeast was uh, was Michigan, and Ohio and, you know, Michigan and Ohio. And um, he owned all of Michigan, and all of Ohio. He had part of western Pennsylvania, northeastern Kentucky and, you know, uh, even a little bit of uh, eastern Indiana. And, um, you know, he made a lot of money during those days a lot of money
0: oh yeah so, and when, when you can even if you knew nothing else about the sheik if you know that he was bobby heenan's favorite heel wrestler that's almost enough to be honest to at
2: least get you interested in want, wanting to know more about him so um do you know why you know why the sheik used to do this where he'd point up at the sky and everything do you guys know why he did that no do you do you guys know well, you Dave,
1: Dave Brzezinski told me something about how he always thought that he was he was asking Allah for forgiveness for what he was about to do to his opponent.
2: <laughs> yeah, Boo, Sabu told me that, that he was doing that to make himself look bigger, and he was emulating King Kong on the top of the Empire
1: State Building. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I wish I'd known that. I have to go revise amazing. the book. Yeah. Pointing <laughs> up.
0: For yeah. the paper for the paperback version, maybe. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Al, where can uh, where can people find you? Uh, what's your home number? Um, where can people send <laughs> you know their underpants and all that kind of thing? Your um, social
2: security number. Um, know.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. People can follow me at the real Al Snow on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, every social media because. Uh, before there were blue check marks, there were those that were, Im, you know, imitating me. And if you do imitate me, uh, claim that you're Al Snow. I'm just gonna send you a message. You go aim the bar higher. I mean, if you're gonna fake being a celebrity, why, why would you shoot for me? I mean, be Brad Pitt. Be, you know, George, George Michael. Somebody, somebody with, you know, talent and that are over. Not me. Don't do that. Don't do yourself an injustice. Um, uh, you can catch my, you can get my new comic book at brokeniconcomics.com. And, um, I came out with my own biography. It's on amazon.com. It's Al Snow self-help, um, life lessons from the bizarre career of, uh, professional wrestling career of Al Snow. So Ross, Ross says hi, by the way, cause I did interview Ross. Yes. Ross Owen Williams. What an amazing, amazing guy. What an amazing writer. He really helped out a lot to, yeah helped me um, put the book together.
0: So, I love the level of detail. It's the same with Bob Holly's book as well. There's such,
2: you know, he knew how the, to get the and, best out of the subject, you know, I feel. And the what, the thing that impressed me the most was when I read Bob Holly's book, it sounded like it was Bob Holly's voice, like mm-hmm. Bob was speaking, you know? And, and um, you know, I think Ross has a unique talent to where he can, he can communicate that in that person's voice, so that's um, great well he did a marvelous job
0: um we want to thank you and uh, the the new i snow figure uh we don't have dates yet but uh we've seen the artwork artwork will be out there when the show is out there and because uh, people as we're recording this the announcement hasn't been made yet so uh yeah you know i've seen it it looks incredible uh, it does look
2: great and, and the i'm really that- impressed and i can't wait to get it out there
0: well, the thing that I love about Chella as well, from what I've heard with uh, guys like Haku and some other guys, is that they can work more very closely with Chella in terms of, you know, I I want him to look like this, I want this action, all that kind of thing, and uh, Chella really knock it out of the park. I mean, they've they've made a Bull Nakano figure that like blows my mind, and you know the names yeah. that they go for, and they've made Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, and uh, they really have a love for the names that they make as well, and they don't choose lightly and you know i i think it's it's great that you know cello being a relatively small smaller company as well that wrestlers are so in you know interested in wanting to have a cello figure and a lot of care goes into them and uh, everyone should buy a yeah. hundred of them and plaster the wall with
2: them basically. absolutely especially the al snow figure
0: <laughs> well thank you al and uh thank you brian and thank we you. will be thank back. you brian thank you al and we'll be back soon with uh either we'll just talk about something or oh, there'll be another interview whatever Chella <laughs> wants to give us uh we are at Chella's mercy oh, i certainly am uh so yes i want to thank you all and uh please tune in to uh grapple arcade and check out all the archives and stuff like that and al i want to thank you again and we will see you all thank next you time. take care guys